For years now, we've been hearing about the growing opioid epidemic sweeping the nation. It is a huge problem in Philadelphia. In Cleveland, it's a crisis. California now leads the nation. Louisville, Kentucky is the latest city to experience overdoses here in Colorado. Every two hours, someone in South Florida suffers an overdose from heroin. And painkiller addiction that's ravaged Indiana. And here in New Hampshire, you don't have to look far to find families shaken to their core. How did this epidemic begin and how does it end? I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we talk with a doctor who's fighting to change how health experts use opioids. When I'm in the recovery area and I see somebody in a significant amount of pain and they ask me, doctor, why am I in so much pain? It's hard to tell them that we're partially responsible for it. But first, in 2015, after years of careful research, journalist and author Sam Quinones published Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. He says the widespread and false idea that opioid pills are not that addictive can be traced back to 1980. That year, the New England Journal of Medicine published something that came to be known as the Porter and Jick letter. Under the heading, Addiction Rare in Patients Treated with Narcotics, what it said was, if you administer these drugs under very controlled circumstances in hospital one at a time, they don't lead to addiction, and that is true. But people construe that to mean that narcotic painkillers were somehow now known to be non-addictive when used to treat pain. This little letter became the cornerstone of a revolution in pain management in the United States that begins really in the 1990s and gains a a huge momentum through that decade and into the last decade. And you write that Purdue Pharma in particular used the Porter and Jick letter to support heavy marketing of OxyContin. Can you talk about that? Uh, uh, Purdue is the company that produces OxyContin. It's released in 1996. Uh, It's a game changer. Uh, Most opiates up to that point uh, are produced with, in combination with acetaminophen or Tylenol. And the reason for that is to prevent abuse. The acetaminophen or Tylenol will will do great damage to your internal organs. OxyContin was the first with none of that. It was just straight uh, opiate painkiller. Purdue Pharma felt that it had a winner here, and what it really needed to do was convince doctors that they needed to start prescribing this, and this stuff would not be addictive. They hired hundreds of of sales reps and and sent them out to doctors promoting the idea that these pills were now virtually non-addictive when used to treat pain, that less than 1% of all patients treated with opiate painkillers uh, got addicted. Uh, these were these were claims that had no basis in fact or evidence or study, and yet they were pushed that way. Through that, a new conventional wisdom was created that these pills were good for, for treating pain, OxyContin especially, and, and this was how we needed to do it. We had not been doing a good job of treating pain, and now we really needed to do so. And these pills were, were the way to do that. What was happening regarding pain management in the medical field in general? In general, we were developing the idea that we were a country in pain. There was an epidemic of untreated pain. We didn't really want to do the necessary work that would allow us to live without pain, choosing better diet, um, quitting smoking, exercising more. We wanted something easy and quick, and the pills were it. Your book, Dreamland, came out in 2015. Do you think the opioid crisis has diminished or grown since then? 
Well, it's grown in two senses. One, I think certainly there are far more people getting addicted. Um, there are more people uh, dying, and I think those numbers are really are, is a low count. But at the same time, what I also think has happened is far, far more awareness. I can tell you I felt very alone when I was writing that book. Parents of, uh, of addicted kids in particular were very scared. We did not, were very sh- uh, ashamed and stigmatized, embarrassed by the fact that their kids were strung out on pills or on heroin, whatever it happened to be. Um, it's a, just a nightmare, a torment for these families. Uh, the least of your worries is that you go through your, your life savings. I mean, you, you have your son uh, stealing everything lying to you, your daughter out hooking on the streets. It turns the child that you saw growing up and remember reading books to and going to the park with and this kind of thing, it turns this person into somebody completely different as if that person is invaded by some kind of alien force or something like that. That's the feeling many parents have described. The phone rings after like eight in the evening and it's a terrifying thing because you think, you know, my son's dead or something. Sometimes people are thrilled uh, this is how bad it gets, thrilled when their son or daughter lands in jail, because at least you know where they are and they're, they're somehow safe. One addict cr- creates a whole kind of a, a field of people who are affected by this in one way or another. Looking at the landscape of the country, where is the epidemic worst? I think it's bad almost everywhere. It's rural areas. It's suburban areas. It's places far from where you'd think uh, heroin and opiate addiction uh, can take place. Why did we go from opioids to heroin. What's the connection between those two? They're all drugs derived from the opium poppy. The way people go from pills to heroin is because they cannot afford the pills anymore. They're very expensive when they're on the street. Uh, Sometimes doctors cut patients off. They end up using heroin. And and another key part of this story is that in the 1980s, our heroin market changed. A lot of our heroin up to then was coming from the Far East, from Burma and Thailand, Turkey, places like that. That changed. The heroin coming from Mexico and from Colombia simply outcompeted the heroin from the Far East. It got here cheaper and more potent. Nobody paid any attention back then because we were dealing with other drugs, right? Crack and then meth, and no one really cared. It wasn't until medicine changed in the United States and created all these people with a heavy, heavy dependence or addiction to opiates that all of a sudden that change back in the 1980s became relevant. Now what we have is people developing huge tolerances to pills, 200, 300 milligrams a day, and then needing a substitute, a cheap substitute. And all of a sudden that heroin from Mexico is all of a sudden the great alternative. I'm still trying to fully understand why this opioid crisis and then heroin crisis spread into these rural areas where you had the sort of middle-class America, salt of the earth, or people in particularly poor Appalachian regions. It wouldn't seem that these were people who'd had more surgeries than others and therefore were being given more OxyContin, and therefore it seemed to be culturally something else. Well, there were a couple of things at work. One was that in a lot of these areas, doctors were already economic solutions. Doctors were who you needed to go to if you wanted to get workers' comp or SSI. They were way you navigated economic catastrophe in your life. So a lot of doctors were used to helping their patients in ways that didn't really have as much to do with health and more had more to do with the economics. And they began to kind of wink and nod at certain, okay, we'll go along with it. I know. I've known you for 10 years. So I'll just sign here. I, I, it's probably not legit, but, you know, by the time OxyContin came out, there were already many doctors in these areas that had developed a very, very easygoing approach to 
drug prescribing of all kinds. Because in front of them, one after another, patients by the hundreds who were in some kind of pain, were, were, were needing something. And they, it's hard to maintain uh, your ethical, uh, moral compass faced with that kind of pressure from people you know and you've dealt with for years. And the, the pharmaceutical companies knew this. They knew, they had data showing who were the biggest prescribers, and a lot of them were in that area. And I think this is true of a lot of areas of rural America, frankly. Uh, there's another thing that began to happen, though, that, that kind of hid this for a while. And that is that in a lot of the areas where this was worse were small counties. And those small counties did not have proper budgets or talent pool to have coroners or medical examiners who, who could really recognize this at first. When you're seeing a, a public health problem, people dying, that's the first line of defense is the coroners. And, and frequently they didn't know what they were seeing. They didn't have money to do toxicology, test blood work uh, on the people who died. Sometimes there was family pressure. Please don't put this cause of death in my son's uh, coroner report. All of that helped hide this problem, too. Are most people who were dying from overdosing hardened, um, experienced opioid users, or are they young, naive people who one night gobble one too many? No, I, I think there's a mix. There's definitely a mix. There's some people who have been addicted a long time. One of the problems that we have in America today is that the amount of opiate supply on our streets in the form of pills of all kinds, Lorset, Percocet, Vicodin, Oxycontin, whatever it is, and in the form of heroin, is so massive that when you go in now to uh, rehab or jail, getting out is one of the most dangerous things that can happen to you. You know, when you relapse on cigarettes, you, you quit and then you start smoking again, you don't die. Same with alcohol. You know? But with this stuff, you relapse and it is very easy to die, particularly when you come out clean and you don't have the same tolerance level. They get back out, they use something similar to what they were using when they went in and bam, they're dead. Happens a lot. Do you know anyone other than people you've covered who've experienced this tragedy? Personally? Yeah. In my personal life, I do not. Yeah. I would say that we are not the um, the norm. And no sooner do I tell people what, what my book's about, then pretty soon their voice drops, and they start looking around, and they're like they're going to tell you some national secret, and they say, my son or my cousin's daughter or whatever. It's amazing to me how often when you bring this up, people begin to tell you stories in their own family. Always the children of the poor? Oh, no, 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 no. It starts in Appalachia, low-income whites. No one pays attention. Had we paid attention to Appalachia back in 98, 99, 2000, you know, almost 20 years ago now, we would not have this problem. It's, it's all over the country now. It's a very big now, I would say, in a lot of uh, universities, also very big in a lot of athletic programs, high school and college, because how do you treat pain? Football, wrestling, lacrosse, soccer. You treat pain by blasting with pills, and, and a lot of kids get addicted that way, car accidents. So you're seeing people who, who have a lot of the benefits of America in their lives. They've done very well. They're wealthy. They have all the, the stuff, and yet they are getting addicted and sometimes dying on drugs used, uh, of all things, to numb pain. There have been some attempts to hold pharmaceutical companies accountable for some of this drug addiction. How has that played out in courts? Not very well. One way they defend themselves is by saying this is accepted medical practice. Using these pills is accepted medical practice, and they are correct in that. That is part of why they have not been successful. We'll see in the future uh, what comes. Have there been efforts to reduce 
the production of opioids in this way? You know, it's an important point. For a long time, I lived in Mexico for many years, and I believed that drug scourges were caused by demand in the United States. Uh, this book, doing this research, changed my mind on that. I no longer believe that demand creates this stuff. I believe the first generator, the, in, the igniter of this whole problem, is excess supply. We did not have a whole lot of heroin addicts demanding heroin before we had a, an enormous new supply of opiates unleashed on the country in the form of opiate painkiller pills. You are now seeing, particularly in large HMOs, which have the ability to do this, a lot of measures taken so that their doctors prescribe this less, these drugs less, and that they turn to other solutions for pain management first. Before I let you go, let me ask you, in all of the experiences with people who had addiction or knew somebody addicted, do you have advice for family members who have a loved one who's addicted? Was there anything in particular that's helpful? I think reaching out to others for so long, for years, mothers and fathers would be alone in their room, terrified that their kid would die, and almost as terrified that anyone find out their kid was addicted. Families were constantly reinventing the wheel, in a sense, because they, they would try things, and other families would, would have known, had they reached out, had they talked to groups, been to groups and talked to people, people would say, yeah, don't do this. We tried that. Believe me, it doesn't work. You know, My feeling is they need to be public about it. They need to bring their story forward. That is really, really important, because this spread due to silence. They were mortified, they were ashamed and embarrassed, and you need to reach out. You need to talk to other people. The only way to, to effectively deal with it is to find community, find the people who can help you, and maybe eventually you help others as well. And that's, that's the way we, we, uh, we get at this. Sam Kionis is a journalist, storyteller, former L.A. Times reporter, and author of three acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction. His book on the opioid crisis is Dreamland, the new true tale of America's opiate epidemic. Coming up next, a new study suggests that using more opioids during surgery can actually cause people more pain afterwards. Most people in America who undergo surgery are given opioids, not just after the surgery, but during as well. But that's not always the case outside of this country. And thanks to the influence of a Dutch anesthesiologist named Marcel Duroux, the University of Virginia Medical Center began cutting down on the number of opioids they used during surgery. The resulting change was astonishing. My next guest is Dr. Gregory Smith, one of three University of Virginia anesthesiologists who conducted a study looking at UVA's use of opioids during surgery. The University of Virginia anesthesiology program has become experts in the management of pain with people undergoing surgery. And so we use things like lidocaine infusions, which are very novel and not used throughout the rest of the country. We're also using a significant amount of medicines like ketamine, acetaminophen or Tylenol, Ketorolac, which is like ibuprofen, magnesium even, can help reduce the number of opioids and help people have less pain after surgery. And why would you need opioids when you've already got somebody conked out? <laughs> and that's an excellent point. When people are under general anesthesia, they're unconscious. They cannot feel pain. Now, their body can react to surgical 
stimuli in the sense that if you cut on somebody, their heart rate may go up or their blood pressure may go up. They have stress when it comes to surgery. However, they do not consciously experience pain. So what were you trying to solve when you launched your study? What were you looking at? It all came down to this for me. Medical students would always ask me, why am I given these types of drugs? And I would say, it's because I'm trying to reduce opioids and I'm trying to improve pain. So we did look at over 100,000 patients in about a four-year period. We expected that pain was either going to be the same or we were worried that it may actually be worse. But we weren't expecting that it would be improved. So you looked back at surgical patient outcomes from the time the Netherlands doctor had arrived where anesthesiologists and surgeons used fewer opioids during procedures? Well, so, so Dr. Durio did train in anesthesiology here in the United States. He did medical school in the Netherlands. And a lot more people were getting opioids back in 2011 than they were in 2014. And when you had higher doses of opioids in surgery, they reported significantly higher pain than they did when we stopped using as many opioids. How much of a difference was it? It was about a 31% reduction. That's stunning, isn't it? This is big. This is big. (laughs) This is very big. And how do you explain that? How could it be that when we gave patients fewer opioids, their pain levels actually went down after surgery? And that is an excellent question. So what you would think is that if you gave pain medicine, then you would have improvement in pain after surgery. However, what may actually happen since you're unconscious during the procedure, if you're given high doses of opioids, the body may actually try to counter reverse that and actually cause you more pain. It's called opioid induced hyperalgesia, which is very well known, very well studied, and can show that opioids can actually increase pain sensitivity. And we think that it may actually increase it more during surgery. So how could you tell how much pain any given post-surgery patient had? So they go in the the recovery room after surgery. And one of the first things that we ask them is to rate their pain. And the people that had higher pain scores universally had a higher average of opioid use in the operating room. What does this lead you to think? I think that people are developing increased tolerance to the drug and increased sensitivity to pain. Even in that short amount of time? It's hard to wrap your mind around because people like doctors a lot of times understand that over long periods of time, if you give people opioids, they may have increased sensitivity to pain. But there are several small studies that show that people who got higher doses of opioids during surgery had significantly more pain after surgery, and they required more opioids to get their pain under control after surgery. When you shared this with other anesthesiologists you know, did they dismiss it or were they stunned? (laughs) I actually gave a grand rounds talk to the University of Virginia anesthesiologists uh, just the other week about this very topic. This whole idea of how well do opioids actually do their job relieving pain in surgery. And I showed them several different studies from several different viewpoints on my thought process that opioids actually cause significantly more pain when given in surgery. And they were fascinated. They thought the talk was excellent. 
So what should we take away from this? What is the meaning of this to the general population where we're experiencing a dramatic increase in opioid deaths and overdoses? So this study does not prove anything. However, because it's so many people and it shows such a strong correlation, it is suggestive that maybe this is very causative in that if you give too many opioids in surgery, they're going to have more pain afterwards and require more pain relief, usually opioids after surgery. If we can reduce the number of opioids given in surgery and people have less pain after surgery and require less opioids after surgery, they're less likely to go home on opioids. They're less likely to develop an addiction or a tolerance or a dependence to opioids and less likely to have these significant problems afterwards. Don't most people, though, go home, maybe take one or two of the pills in the small bottle they have, and then sort of instinctively say, I think I'm just not going to take any more after that? Absolutely. And that happens all the time. A lot of people will have a bottle of opioids sitting in their medicine cabinet. Honestly, I do too. And that's because we probably get prescribed more than we actually need. But I'm also saying that we also don't become addicted to it. And we don't go back to get refills. Well, so even with routine procedures, we know that a very small percentage of people, we actually think it's around 0.5%, will require opioids one year later. That seems like a very small number, but that would be 500,000 people at risk for being on long-term opioids every single year. That is a huge number. That's a tremendous number. What sort of surgeries generally are associated with applying opioids during surgery? Are we talking about knee operations or back surgery? Unfortunately, most procedures where the surgeon uses a knife, people are getting opioids. And so these are your routines like knee replacements, hip replacements, gallbladder surgeries, etc. But the reason the doctors are doing it, as you've pointed out, is because the body, even though unconscious, is experiencing a stress reaction that the surgeon worries will have an adverse outcome on the patient. The surgeons and the anesthesiologists, we definitely do not want the patient to experience any sort of stress under surgery. And so I think that's part of the reason why most anesthesiologists continue to prescribe opioids during surgery. However, there are are so many different medicines that we have available that can help with that stress response. How much of the problem with the epidemic we're seeing now, are you guessing, might be caused by initial exposure through surgery? Well, I would say a significant amount of this problem is exposure either through surgery or in a clinic because people are having pain. And so I think that a lot of doctors probably have fueled this, this problem. Have you thought through some of the small reasons why a surgeon, a doctor in a clinic, each one of them might be incentivized to dispense more opioids than people need? Absolutely. And and this is a huge problem in that most people will do fine after surgery and won't have any problems. But then a lot of people call back the doctor and say, I'm in much more pain, and then ask them for another prescription. The problem is, especially these surgeons, is they work really, really long hours. If they get phone calls in the middle of the night to prescribe for pain, this is very draining and very hard for them. And so a lot of times they prescribe more opioids 
for people just to try and cut back on those phone calls. What about family doctors and doctors at clinical practices? Probably one of the most common complaints at a family doctor is pain, back pain, knee pain, things like that. First of all, the doctor will try things like Tylenol, will try things like ibuprofen, but a lot of people keep coming back and saying, I'm in significant amount of pain. Please do something for me, doctor. It's pretty easy to prescribe an opioid. And so that's what most, I, I feel like a lot of doctors do. Have you seen people who are in a kind of opioid respiratory crisis? Absolutely. I usually see them after surgery. A lot of times they'll be in the recovery room and they stop breathing. Sometimes how we deal with that is easy enough to just say, sir, please breathe, and then they start breathing. But sometimes they've become so depressed with their respiratory function, we actually have to revive them and maybe even put in a breathing tube to keep them alive. These aren't addicted people. These are just post-surgery people. Yeah, these are your everyday post-surgery people. So tell me again why it is that any anesthesiologist would prescribe an opioid in addition to the anesthetic. Everybody wants to do the right thing for their patients. And I think most people believe that if you give them an opioid during surgery, you're helping them. I think that the recent literature and my, my study as well kind of disproves that. It's, I, I'd say it's a myth with the caveat that when a patient wakes up after surgery, they are going to need pain relief. And so what my practice is, is that I completely avoid opioids and use other types of pain medicines up until the very last part of their surgery. When they're about to wake up, that's when I give them the opioids because that's when they're in pain and that's when they're going to need it. Then they go up to the floor and they're being managed by their surgeon or another doctor. Do you think there is a problem in the sort of siloed approach to treating pain that we find ourselves in now? Absolutely. A lot of doctors don't know or don't have the experience using these different types of pain medicines that an anesthesiologist does. And so they, they kind of run out of things in their toolbox. And a lot of times the fallback would be opioids. I don't know the best way to handle that, but one thing that has been done at Vanderbilt, their anesthesiology department has essentially taken over the full post-operative pain management process. They've hired a significant amount of personnel to round on every patient after surgery for several days and use alternative treatments than opioids to try and ensure that they will leave the hospital without ever needing opioids. How emotionally traumatic can it be for an anesthesiologist or a surgeon or a doctor confronted with a patient who seems to be in real pain distress? It's incredibly hard, and that's a lot of what drives my research. When I'm in the recovery area and I see somebody in a significant amount of pain and they ask me, doctor, why am I in so much pain? Even though I'm getting all of these medicines, why am I in so much pain? And I look at their record and saw they got a bunch of opioids in the operating room. I, I know, or at least I think I know why they're in pain. It's hard to tell them that we're partially responsible for it. And so that's part of the reason why I've kind of made my, started my career off in this, in this particular area to try and to ensure that we treat pain the best we can after surgery. Craig Smith, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking with you.
Dr. Gregory Smith worked on this study as an anesthesiology resident at the University of Virginia Medical Center. He's now a pediatric anesthesiology fellow at Texas Children's Hospital. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Allison Quance is our senior producer. Elliot Majerzik is our producer. Kelly Libby is our associate producer. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. And our intern is Georgiana Reed. For the podcast, go to iTunes or withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.